tonight's subject is on the seal of God. And I remember when I first got my degree, a bachelor's degree, that it was not official until it had a seal. Seals are very important in making documents um, official. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your help. We thank you for the privilege we have to study thy word. And we pray that you'll put your hand over the equipment that will work. And thank you for hearing us in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's turn to the Bible, to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. The book of Revelation, chapter 7, we find there the appeal or the call of three angels that are flying through the midst of heaven, the four angels holding back the winds of strife that are about to blow upon the earth. And the appeal is uh, to hold back the winds until the servants of our God are sealed in their foreheads. In what? In their foreheads. And so, it begins with uh, the actual call. It begins with the uh, verse 3, saying, Heard not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now, it's interesting that these angels holding back the winds are being admonished to hold it until people are being sealed, which means then that this is happening at a time when decisions are being made either for life or for death. Most of the time when you, when you look at Revelation, unless you understand it correctly, it seems like an angry God. And it is true that God uh, appears to be angry, just like any parent would be angry if they thought that somebody was taking advantage of their children who could not defend themselves. Is that true? I know that I've seen uh, parents with their tears hot because uh, their child was lost and there are people who were aware that there was a need but did nothing about it. And uh, the parents were quite angry that the child could have been saved if those people had paid attention. And so the idea is that God is very, very anxious to get people's attention. And because he's that anxious, Sometimes it appears to human beings like God has no mercy. But on the other hand, if you see it says, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till what? Till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So, how many of you have seen these things before? How many of you have do, done canning? Can I see your hands? Oh, most of you done canning. Um... 
the thing we like about this season that's coming is uh, my trees are about ready to to be harvested. Is that time when we could make applesauce and uh, apricot sauce and uh, peaches, etc. Nothing like sitting down and eating something that has been preserved. Been what? Preserved. The scriptures, however, uses the term seal in, in, uh, in a little different way, and that is this, that in Revelation chapter 7, it is calling for a particular setting aside. It uses a phrase seal, my servants in their foreheads, in that once it is done, there is no reversal. Once it's what? is done, there's no reversal. And the same thing is true with the mark of the beast. So according to the Bible, you either receive the seal of God or you receive the mark of the beast. There is no middle ground. There is no situation where nobody receives either. What the Bible bears out is that either you receive one or either you receive the other one. Now, let's look a little bit about uh, concerning the, the seal. In the old times, when they sealed letters, it, they basically they put wax, and then they had something that was heated, and the, the it was put on the wax, and left the imprint of whatever the seal was. Sometimes the kings had rings that had a seal. For example, in the days of Esther, chapter 8, verse 8, when the king of Hazurus uh, was was willing to help Esther and her people deliver themselves, he simply said, write ye also for the Jews as it liketh you. In other words, you put in the letter, whatever you want to put in it, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring. So the the ring many times was used as a signet that, that uh, they could use to actually stamp their seal of approval on their letters. And only those people who uh, were uh, authorized could actually break that seal. And also you knew that somebody had read it if the seal was broken. So the sealing was done uh, in old times that way. Now the question is, since God says, uh, hurt not the earth until we seal the servants of our God's in their foreheads, then how is it that God seals it? This scripture, chapter 4 and verse 30 of Ephesians, uh, gives you a little hint. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are what? Sealed unto the day of redemption. And perhaps I should make some clarification here. The clarification is this, that there is an instrument and then there is the seal. In other words, seals don't automatically use themselves. Somebody has to use the seal. Is that true? How many of you have seen a seal that it, it has the, the, the ability to imprint itself on things? No, usually a seal is taken by somebody, either in a ring or an actual seal. Many times my wife and I, when students are about to graduate, we have to make seals, and I have to use my muscles to press that thing so that the seal actually is embossed on that golden seal that we have. 
So there's the instrument and there's the actual seal. So tonight we've discovered then that it is the Spirit of God that does the sealing. But there's a difference between the one that does the sealing and the seal. Is that true? Yes or no? Just to demonstrate that, let's look at what the Bible says. Notice what Isaiah 8.16 says. Bind up the testimony and what? And seal the law among my disciples. So, the agent that seals is the Spirit of God. But what is it that is actually sealed? What is the seal? And according to this, we find then that it says, Seal the law among my disciples. So, there's something then that the Bible reveals is the seal. And I've heard preachers say that the Spirit is the seal. But the Spirit is the one that seals. But we have to then discover what is the seal. And right now we're having a hint in Isaiah 8.16. But look, for this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws where? In their minds and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. Then we can see then that when the Spirit of God seals, he actually seals something within the heart and mind. What is that? What does it say? It says the law. And what it, it's not that you get a stamp on your forehead as a lot of people think. How many of you have heard people say that you get some kind of stamp on your forehead that everybody can see? Have you heard that before? Yes, I've heard preachers uh, even say that all of us are going to get a chip. We're going to get a what? A chip that's going to be implanted in you so that you can be identified. To be honest with you, you don't need a chip any longer. All you have to do is have a cell phone. Have a what? Cell phone. If you have a cell phone, even if you turn it off, as long as it's by you, they can find you. Did you hear what I said? Even if you turn it off, they can find you. If you want to do a test on that, how many of you have iPhones? Any of you have iPhones? And how many of you have iPads? If you have an iPad, all right, turn off your iPad and leave it someplace and take your iPhone and ask it to find your iPad. And even though the iPad is turned off, the iPhone will tell you precisely where your iPad is. That happened to me recently. Uh, I went to Vermont with my wife. And uh, we, she left her iPad someplace. She thought maybe she left, lost it on the plane. Or we didn't know where it was. So what I did was I took my phone and I just simply said, find the iPad. And I watched it. It traced it right back to our house in <laughs> where it was. So we discovered that she hadn't lost it on the plane. She hadn't lost it where she thought she had lost it. She had left it back at, at the house. And the iPhone told us precisely where it was. It was at the house. Isn't that wonderful? But spooky, what do you say? It's wonderful in one sense when you lose something, that you have something that can help you to find it. But now you know that 
If, as long as you have an iPhone, iPad, a book, or uh, uh, anything that's electronic, they can find you. And you should know this also, that all your wheels on your car have a chip implanted in it that if police want to find your car, they can find it. Did you know that? So, this whole idea that you're going to get a chip in your forehead, you don't have to worry about that. You are already identified. It's just a matter of finding you. That's all. So, the Bible then reveals then that God does not want to put some kind of stamp that's visible in people's foreheads, but he wants to put something inside of us. Because God does not want to have robots that just have something stamped that marks them to identify them. God wants us to develop a character that is Christ-like, and that character is basically summarized in the Ten Commandments. And so, when God seals his people, he's actually sealing his people with something within. Where? Within. So, here's what we find now. The Antichrist has a mark, and God has a seal. Now, there's a difference between a mark and a seal. I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his head the name of blasphemy, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So, if you look at this, you can see that it is one or two or three. Notice it says, save he that had the what? Mark or what else? The name or what else? The number. So when people say you're going to have a chip on your forehead, it does not, it's not supported by the Bible. The Bible doesn't say you're going to get a chip on your forehead. It says that one of three ways you will be identified as a worshiper of the beast. But there's only one way that you can be identified as a worshiper of the creator. One thing that identifies you. So what is the central issue? The central issue is a system that has lifted up itself and has supplanted the truth of God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life, of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. One or the other. Do you see that? That is why Jesus said that there are only two roads. How many? Two roads. One at least to heaven and one at least to destruction. Straight and narrow is the way and broad is the way that leads to destruction. One or the other. I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation, kindred, and tongue, and people. Saying with a loud voice, do what? Fear God, give glory to him, for the obvious judgment has come. And do what? And worship him 
that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Today then, you have a choice. You can worship whatever man has made, or you can worship what God has declared for you to worship. And according to the scriptures, you should worship him. Paul wrote about this yielding idea in this verse. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourself servant to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. It is the way that you live. It is what you believe that sets you on one side or places you on the other side. There are people who say, I am not for this and I'm not for that. But with God, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Jesus says, he that is not for me is against me. So there is no middle of the ground. So what is it then that the Lord is trying to tell us with Revelation? The central battle or issue is the worship of the creator or the creature. There are many, many, many different philosophical perspectives that people have. Uh, many teachings, many doctrines, many ideas uh, that sound good, that seem to be a, a, a sensible, but when you compare it with scriptures, you may discover that sounding good is not good. There are a lot of things that taste good that are not good. Is that true? For example, people who suffer uh, from diabetes, most of it is, is caused by what they eat. And usually what they eat to them tastes good. But something that tastes good is not necessarily good of itself. Is that true? What we have to do is learn how to uh, educate ourselves and retrain the mind so that you begin to like that which you didn't like and despise that which you used to like and you realize it's not good for you. Now, there are people who think that they can't change their taste buds. Uh, if, you, if you go to certain countries, there are certain things that people like. For example, if you go to Poland, in Poland, people like sour, sour soup. However, there are some countries that don't like sour soup. They like sweet soup. But if you get used to it, the person who likes sour soup does not like sweet soup. And the person that likes sweet soup does not like sour soup. So where's the problem? The problem is simply in the what? The taste, but the way, the way you were trained. And when it comes to religion, it's the same thing. If you were brought up with a certain perspective in your religious life, you are so used to that that it's, it, it places you in a comfort zone. But that comfort zone may not necessarily be the right direction. But if you're comfortable in it, you are happy in it and you feel satisfied. And then if somebody suggests that you need to change, well, there's war declared because you are not about you are not about to change I've, I've i had a person who said to me 
when I first became a believer, I went to my friend. His name was Pepe. And I went to tell him how God had delivered me and saved me from all the stuff that we had been into together uh, as adolescents. And when he heard me talking about that I had become uh, a believer in what he considered to be a Protestant, because we were both Catholic, I remember that he bit his finger. He used to bite it. When he would get angry, he would bite his finger, and he had a huge callus on his finger from buying his finger, biting his finger. So when he heard that I had changed religion, as far as he was concerned, he bit his finger so hard, and he was shaking like that. And then he took his fist, and he pounded on his kitchen table and broke it in half. That's how angry he was. And then he said to me, I was born a Catholic and I'll die a Catholic. Get out of my house. I couldn't believe it. We were buddies. We were what? We were buddies. And all of a sudden, we were enemies. I hadn't declared war, but he had. Why? Because he was brought up in a certain way and he believed that even though he was immoral and even though he was a wicked person, that he was born a certain way and he was going to stay that way. Well, un unfortunately for him, his way never helped him. About 10 years later, he was in serious trouble. And how he found me, I don't know. But he called me up begging for help. There are ways that the Bible says seem as right unto a man, but the ways thereof are the ways of death. Now, let's consider a little bit here about this particular uh, worship issue. I've already discussed with you concerning Christ as being the creator. And the reason why this is important is because most people do not understand or don't know that Jesus was the one who put things together on this earth. Many times they believe that Jesus was just born as a nice young boy who grew up as a nice young man and he was such a wonderful person and finally he was killed and died. But the reality is that we're not dealing with a bare human being. We're dealing with a divine being. A what? A divine being. Christ was divine. Let me give you some text to, to demonstrate that. You remember in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Then it says, all things were made by who? By Him. Now, some people get confused about that. They say, all things were made by God. But notice verse 10, he says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him what? Knew him not. So who was the creator? Why, it was Jesus. Where was Jesus? In the beginning. And the scripture bears out then that it was a divine human being that somehow, for the sake of mankind, limited himself to human nature. So that as a human being, he could live out a life to demonstrate how we could live. Died to pay our sins and rose again to give us hope that even if we should die, 
we would be able to have life beyond the grave as a human being to live forever. And that's good news, what do you say? And so the creator then was Jesus. Here in Colossians, notice what it says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created by what? By him. And what else? And for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. The love of God, willing to limit himself to become a, a mere human being, so that through his life he could help us to understand how good it is to serve our Heavenly Father and what kind of God the Heavenly Father is. Because for centuries, the Heavenly Father had been blackened by the supposed terrible things who were taking place on the earth when all the time it was the Antichrist, or should I say the true Antichrist, the devil, who sought to supplant Jesus Christ. If, since he could not do it by force, then he began to do it by deception. And today, we have many people following who they think is Christ, when in reality, they're following a mere person. God, who at sundry things, uh, times, pardon me, and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, have in these last days spoken unto us by whom? By his son, whom he have appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the what? The world. So who is the creator? It is Jesus. So revelation then is a battle revealed concerning that which is seeking to supplant the one who not only is our God, not only was he our creator, but our redeemer and our hope of eternal life. And so, the enemy is seeking to supplant it, but Christ is still revealing himself in love to mankind to help them realize that there's one true way of salvation. And how do we identify ourselves with him is what this is revealing. Notice then that he is the what? The lawgiver. The Ten Commandments were not given by the Father. The Ten Commandments were written by the finger of Jesus Christ. Now that may be news to you, but let me just share some things with you. In John 14, Jesus said, If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. And he was quoting from the second commandment, where it says, Showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my what? My commandments. Jesus was actually claiming himself to be the lawgiver. Then, of course, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will what? He will save us. Isaiah 33, verse 22. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, notice what it says. Moreover, brethren, I will not that you should be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that what? That followed them, and that rock was Christ. 
Did you know that the one who was in the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day, did you know that that was the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? How many of you knew that? How many of you did not know that? How many of you don't want to admit that you didn't know it? But it's all right, folks. Listen, we, we come to a place where we must know the truth because it is the truth that sets you free. And so, Jesus then, the rock, the Bible then predicted that the law that Jesus inscribed in stone to demonstrate that he was the God that gave those laws and that those laws pointed to him, the enemy then sought to change those laws or get rid of them, either one or the other. The Bible then predicted the attempt to change that, that law. And we find then, and it says, and shall intend to change the times and laws. And so there was an effort. The Bible says, who opposed him and exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So have his laws been changed? Let's look at them. The Ten Commandments. Here's what the Ten Commandments look like. This is an abbreviated law. A what? Abbreviated law. The first, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. The second, you shall make no uh, other gods, neither in heaven above or the earth beneath from the waters under the earth. But this one just simply says, you shall not make yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. The fourth commandment, pardon me, the third, you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The fourth is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But that's only a, a very brief abbreviation. Honor your father and your mother, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, and you shall not kill. I skipped one. Where is it? You shall not murder. All right, and then you shall not covet. The difference is this one. The changed law. I am the Lord your God. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only so you'll serve. You shall not make the name of the Lord your God in vain or take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember to keep holy the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother. So what they did was basically removed number two, took number two, three and made it number two. Number four became number three. Number five became number four. And then the last one, number nine, they divided it into two. So you still have Ten Commandments, but not the original Ten Commandments. So, why the change? Because it identifies who to worship and when. Without the Ten Commandments, you can be led to worship any Jesus. Anyone? Any Jesus. At any time. But with the Ten Commandments, it limits you. It what? And I'm saying that in this way. Many times, as parents, we will try to keep our children from going beyond where they can get hurt. Is that true? Is that true, yes or no? I remember we, I had a church member. He had a little boy named Sammy. And Sammy usually did not mind his mother. She was a single parent. And one time we were at a camp meeting and she was beside herself because she kept on trying to uh, keep him from doing this and doing that. He wouldn't listen to him, to her. So I grabbed a hold of little Sammy. First I got permission from mom. 
I said, you can't take care of him. Do you mind if I intervene? She said, Pastor, you, you have him. I said, good. So I um, ran after Sammy, got a hold of him, and he began to scream and yell and scream and kick and yell and trying to punch me and all that. So what I did was I sat on the ground with him. I put my legs around him, put my arms around him so he couldn't kick and he couldn't punch. And I had him with his back toward me so he couldn't turn around and bite me. And so that poor little Sammy kept on screaming, hoping that people would come and rescue him. Well, nobody rescued him. And finally, I said to Sammy, I said, you, do you want to be uh, set free? I said, I will not let you go until you calm down and you decide you're going to behave yourself. I had to hold him for two hours. How long? Two hours. But when I finished with him, if I called him, what do you think he did? He came to me. He knew that I would hold him down for two more hours. You understand? But then mother moved away. They moved up to north of Spokane, Washington. And I was told that mother set the boundaries for Sammy. He had a bicycle. And he always wanted to go everywhere with his bicycle. And mom begged him not to. This is the limit, Sammy. But unfortunately, Sammy didn't pay attention. And he was riding the bicycle in the wrong place. And he died. God sets limits for us. Not so that we die. It's that we live. And as long as you stay within the parameters that God has set for you, it's not a don't, don't, don't. Rather, it's a do, do, do. In other words, as long as you stay within the parameters, you are protected. You don't have to worry about looking behind your back to see if somebody noticed what you did. I remember one time I was walking down the street and I turned the corner and I saw a church member. I was a new pastor in that church. And I saw him do something like this. And unfortunately, I was walking toward him. What he did not know is that I noticed what he did. And he had his hand uh, trying to smother the cigarette. Well, you know what that means, right? You can't smother a cigarette on your hand without burning. So that poor fellow was suffering. Out of kindness, I just said, good to see you, my brother. We'll see you later. And I kept on going because I didn't want him to suffer anymore. You understand what I'm saying? And once I passed by, uh, I could see him. You understand? Well, the sad thing is this, that you can hide things from people, but you cannot hide things from God. And when God puts that, that uh, circumference around you, it is simply to give you life and give it to you in abundance. But when you think of them as being restrictive, then you do not see the law of God as something beautiful. All you see is don't, don't, don't. But usually it is the rebellious heart that responds that way. Because the willing, obedient person can see the benefits of staying within certain parameters for their own safety and good. So which of the Ten Commandments then identifies who and when you should worship? Which of the Ten Commandments? It is the Fourth Commandment. The Fourth Commandment then 
becomes the actual seal of the living God. Let me just show you something. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth to see, and all that in the midst, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and what? And the word hallow simply means made it holy. Question, can you and I make something holy? Can a man make something holy? No. You can declare Wednesday holy, but does it become holy? No. You can declare anything holy, but does it become holy? No. When I was a little boy, I used to go into the church and you had to first put your finger on in where? Holy water. And you had to cross yourself with holy water. Here's what I discovered. I was in Chestahova. Any of you know what Chestahova is? It is in Poland. And I went to the to the place where the late John Paul had been a monk in that particular cathedral in Poland, in Chestahova. And here's what I discovered. What I discovered was that if they declared something holy, then it was holy, whether it was holy or it wasn't holy. For example, I walked on the scaffolding that was built for the Pope to walk on. So now I'm holy. Is that the way it works? No, because that thing is not holy. It's wood. But if you believe that the Pope is God, then whatever he walks on is holy. Do you understand? And so I, I, I found out also that there was a little spring there and the priest would fill a little bottle of water from that spring. How big? A little bottle. Okay. And then they took it home and filled their bathtub with water and poured that holy water in the bathtub of water and now the whole bathtub was holy water. Now they took that, that holy water and filled many bottles of this holy water and sold it to the parishioners as holy water that came from Chestnahova where the Pope had walked in. My friends, listen. Only God can make something holy. What do you say? We cannot say, and I've, I've had people argue with me, saying, well, all the days are holy, but the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, six days shall thou labor and do all thy work. But the Sabbath is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. He has set the seventh day as holy. And since God is the only one that can make things holy, then the Sabbath is the only day that's holy. What do you say? You and I cannot make any day holy. Only God can. Also, I gave him my Sabbath to be a what? A sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that makes them holy. Sanctify them. So, the scripture makes it plain that the seventh day, which day? The seventh day is the Sabbath day. And if you look at the calendar, and by the way, the calendars are being changed. You know why they're being changed? Because there are people who are trying to convince everybody that Sunday is the seventh day. The reason for that is that if you read the Bible, you discover that it's the seventh day you should keep. So if they can make Sunday the seventh day, then they feel comfortable now in applying the commandment to Sunday as the seventh day of the week. But you and I know 
that Sunday is not the seventh day of the week. The Bible calls it the first day. Now, how do I know that? Let me ask you something. How many of you have been Lutheran? Can I see your hands? How many of you have been Catholics? Can I see your hands? How many of you have been Baptist? Can I see your hands? How many of you have done raising your hand even though you are a Baptist? Okay. Now, so here's, here's the point that I want to make. All right. All of us who have come from a, pers a perspective where Sunday is holy believe that Sunday is the seventh day, but yet we confuse ourselves because when it comes to Easter, we celebrate Sunday as a resurrection day. And we know from the Bible that Sunday is called the first day of the week. The what? The first day of the week. So if Sunday is called the first day of the week, then why is it that church is called Sunday the seventh day of the week? Which is it? It can't be both the first day and the seventh day. The reality, friends, is that the calendars are being changed because there are people who are having a terrible time, speaking about theologians, that are having a terrible time trying to convince people that they should keep Sunday holy from the Bible. So the only way is if you change the calendar and make Sunday the seventh day, then you can apply the fourth commandment to it and make Sunday holy. But if you have the scriptures, you will not be deceived because you will find then that the seventh day is still the seventh day. Okay? If you look at a, calendar, at a dictionary, uh, you'll find then that the dictionary used to say you need to get an old dictionary because the new dictionaries are changing the definition of the seventh day, the first day of the week, etc. But in the old dictionaries, if you put in the first day of the week, it'll say Sunday. You put the seventh day of the week, it'll say Saturday. But now, it just simply says, uh, the day that Christians worship Christ on the first day of the week, okay? And then there's the seventh day, the day that the Jews keep, rather than admitting which is the, the right day, the first day, second day, etc. So, it shall come to pass, notice what it says, shall come to pass that from one new moon to another shall uh, and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. According to the scriptures then, the Sabbath was made in creation before there was a Jew. The Sabbath was kept by Christ because he was the creator. And the Sabbath will be kept throughout eternity. Throughout what? Throughout eternity. That's why the Bible calls it a sign. A what? A sign. So let me just quickly show you from Webster's Dictionary. Saturday is called what? Seventh day of the week. Sunday is called what? The first day of the week. That's Webster's Dictionary. All right? The Catholics say, Saturday is the Sabbath. You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The Scriptures enforces the what? The religious observance of Saturday. Listen. According to the scriptures then, since the seal of God is that which is written in the heart, you desire then to obey your Savior because you love him. Because you what? You love him. And you desire to please him according to what he has revealed to us pleases him. In fact, the Bible does say that we should find that which pleases the Savior. So, 
since Sabbath is the seal of God, you can understand then that the counterpart of the Sabbath would be the first day of the week, which is the day that most of the world is using to worship God. Some people feel like, well, the majority uh, should be right. But in this particular case, the majority is not right. The majority is wrong. It has been led astray because ultimately this is what's going to happen, folks. Sooner or later, Right now, there are blue laws in all of the states in the U.S. But sooner or later, Sunday will become an enforced law in the United States and in the world. And when that happens, then you will not be able to buy or sell unless you keep Sunday. That's why it says, unless they have the mark of the beast. And so the time will come when that will happen. And it's not too far off. I went with my wife to Texas. On Sunday, we were hungry. So we went to a grocery store, like a Safeway. And we went in there and picked some avocados and uh, some bread. And then we got a knife to cut the avocados so that when we could slice it and put it in the, on, the, on the bread. So when we got to the counter... We placed the items there, and the lady immediately took the knife and put it aside. And I said, well, wait a minute, lady. Uh, I want to buy that knife. She said, you can't buy that knife. I said, why? Is it very expensive? She said, no. In this state, it's a blue law. You cannot buy that on Sunday. So I said, but I needed to cut my avocado. She said, I'm sorry, mister. You cannot buy your knife on Sunday. You can buy the avocado. You can buy the bread. But you cannot buy the knife. I thought, well, this is, this is quite interesting. And so we are being led step by step to a situation where the majority of religious entities will join together as there now are. For example, it was not long before the Lutherans just joined back with the Catholic Church. Did you know that? Yes or no? Those of you who raised your hand. Yes. The Lutherans have signed an agreement to become part again of the Catholic Church. And so there's, there's a movement to reunite all the churches under one. And it's happening as we are speaking. And the reality, friends, is that you and I will have to make a choice whether or not we will yield to man's dictates or yield to God's plan. Suppose you and I were to finally get to, uh, to the day of the judgment. And God would say to me, Louis Torres, why did you go to church on Saturday? I would have to say, Lord, number one in creation, you set it aside and you yourself rested on that day. Then Adam kept it with you. Then all those descendants of, of Adam who were faithful kept the commandments. It even says, Lord, that Abraham kept the commandments of statutes, my judgments, and my laws. Jacob kept the commandments. Joseph kept the commandments. That's why you said to that woman, how can I commit the sin against God? Then you inscribed it in tables of stone. And you gave the manna six days to the Jews, except for the Sabbath. 
on the Sabbath, the manna did not spoil. But if they gathered it on any other day more than they should gather, then it turned to worms. And then all through the Old Testament, from the time of Moses on, all the faithful always kept the Sabbath, Saturday. And then you yourself came to this earth and you lived it. And it says, according to your custom, you went to the synagogue on Sabbath. Your disciples, you taught them by example. When you died, that the ladies could not anoint your body because they were honoring you on the Sabbath. Paul kept the Sabbath. Peter kept the Sabbath. All of these people kept the Sabbath. And finally in Revelation you said that those who worship you are the commandment keeping people. So Lord, the reason why I kept Saturday is because of all the examples that I have found in your Bible, they all kept Saturday as the Sabbath. Now, suppose then he turns to you and you're a Sunday keeper. And he says to you, John, why did you go to the church on Sunday? Tell me, who in the Bible will you find as your example? Who? You will not find one example. Your Lord has given you an example. God has given us the Sabbath to keep, to show that we believe that he is our creator, our God, and our Lord. And I'm thankful that God has made it clear. What do you say? And so tonight, I'm going to appeal to you to consider strongly who you're following. It is not by your profession. It is by your living. Jesus says, by their fruits, you shall know them. If you will follow the Lord, then he will write the law in your heart and in your mind, and you will worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the seal, the Sabbath, and that you are anxious to bring us to a place where in our minds and in our hearts, we accept that as the living seal of the living God, a sign between us and you that you are the God that sanctifieth us. Oh God, help us to be true to you as you have been true to us. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.
তাহা 